May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. Amen. If you've been worshiping here at Gloria Day these last three weeks, then you know that three weeks ago we started a series of readings from the Bible's book of James. Because not all of us, of course, have been here the last three weeks, let me do just a quick catch-up to get everybody on board. Two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the Christian faith, according to Christian Faith 101, 201, 301, and 401, says that you don't get God to love you by being good. You don't get to call yourself a child of God because you're so good. And you won't get to heaven someday as a deserved reward for being so supposedly good. Rather, according to the absolute heart of the Christian faith, our relationship with God and all good things that come to us from God, as well as heaven with God one day, are gifts given freely to us through faith in all the things, the good things Jesus did for us in spite of the things we've done, as well as some of the good things we've left undone. The Bible-sounding way of saying that, in Paul's words in the book of Romans and elsewhere, is that we are justified, that is to say we are lined up, made right in our relationship with God, not by works of the law, that is to say not by good things we've done, but by grace through faith in Jesus and all that he has done. Now that said, and said clearly, the book of James is a short book of the Bible whose primary purpose is to prevent us from going from there to here. Well, how cool is that? God loves me no matter what I do, so it doesn't matter what I do. So I think I'll do, or for that matter, not do, whatever I please, because God will forgive me, because I do believe in Jesus. James apparently has seen some of that kind of stuff. To which in his book he says, Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, no. For faith, that's the real thing, James says. Forgiven of sin. One step at a time, one day at a time, one decision at a time, messing up sometimes, nobody's perfect, nevertheless seeks to live its life in this sin-broken world in the direction of the desires of Jesus and his love for this sin-broken world. As James put it in the reading we heard last week, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. You show me your faith apart from your works, and I by my works will show you my faith. Now when it comes to going about that, when it comes to being what he refers to as doers of the word, not just hearers, there are two prominent and recurring sub themes in the book of James. The first of those recurring sub-themes is that the best way to live out your faith in God and your faith's love for God is not to become more religious, 
but rather to reach out with more acts of tangible compassion and care for those most in need in God's world. And the second prominent and recurring sub-theme in James is that a way important way to be doers of the word is seen when it comes to the words we speak. James, in these two prominent and recurring sub-themes, in other words, wants both our actions and our words to rhyme with God's love, not just for us but for our neighbors. I want to tell you something. James doesn't go into one bit of detail about it, but it's very obvious. He has seen, or maybe I should say he has heard, firsthand, way too many times, right there in the church, when what people's words have rhymed with is the exact opposite of the love of God made known in Jesus. And it causes, says James, quite literally, a hell of a mess in Christ's church. From our text for today. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member Yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a fire, a forest, is set ablaze by a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue. A restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. You know the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. James knows, apparently he's seen way more often than he wishes he had, that that old saying isn't true. Words can hurt terribly deeply. And add to that these days, the social media platforms of your choice, via which words can spread exponentially faster and further. And it seems to me that what James says in chapter 3 is almost certainly more true today than it's ever been true. The tongue, or in our case the tongue when it takes to a social media platforms, is a fire which can set such deadly and destructive fires when it itself has been set on fire by hell. Norman MacLean, who wrote a book that was made into a Brad Pitt movie, A River Runs Through It, also wrote a somewhat lesser known but really powerful book that I read called Young Men and Fire, 
which tells the true story of smoke jumpers in the late 1940s, smoke jumpers being men who would parachute into remote areas to fight forest fires. On August 5, 1949, 16 smoke jumpers parachuted into a remote area of Montana called Man Gulch to stop a forest fire there, but in a perfect storm of tragic conditions that all came together at the wrong time, the fire turned on the men and 13 of the 16 died trying to run from it. The three who survived did so because the foreman lit a backfire around them. A backfire being a fire that is deliberately set to pre-burn in an area before the main fire gets there. The three men survived by covering themselves up in that pre-burned area. And when the main fire roared through, it roared around them. Which leaves me thinking about this. Thirteen men died that day and what killed them was fire. Three men were saved that day and what saved them was fire. The tongue, says James, is a powerful fire. And while the images and examples he uses are pretty much all examples of fire that is harsh and destructive and life-threatening, the fact is that like that backfire in Man Gulch, Montana that day, the tongue can also burn with a fire that is powerful, with a power that is good and constructive and life-affirming and life-saving. A question I think James would have us ask is when it comes to the tongue, and right now I'm talking about the tongue in your mouth, what kind of power is it most often powerful with? Destructive and life-threatening power or constructive and life-affirming power? If you're a parent, how would your children answer that question about you? If you're a child, how would your parents answer that question about you? If you're a student, how would your teachers answer that question about you? If you're a teacher, how would your students answer that question about you? If you're married, how would your spouse answer that question about you? If you work, how would the people you work with or work around answer that question about you? When you say something about another person, a person who is not present at the time, how would the people you say those things to answer that question about you? When you post or tweet or chat or whatever is the platform du jour these days about another person or a category of people, how would those who read your words answer that question about you? If the tongue is indeed powerful, the way fire is powerful, when you log on or open your mouth to speak, what do the things you usually say say about the kind of fire you are usually fanning? Is it a fire that takes life or one that gives life? <clears throat> Pardon me, I read an opinion piece somewhere about hate speech and what kind of flames it can fan often when talking about other cultures than mine or other religions than mine or other races than mine or more often these days people with other political convictions than mine. The opinion piece was written to make the point that like it or not in this land of the free, 
including freedom of speech, speaking hatefully about others is something you have the legal right to do. I'm not a legal scholar. I imagine in most, if not all cases, that may well be completely true. It's just that James, of course, is not asking whether or not the things you say are legal. Things you have the right to say. He's asking whether or not the things you say are good. Things that are right, not with American rightness, but with Jesus-like righteousness. Because the flames they fan are the flames of love in a world threatening to burn itself to a hellish death in the self-righteous flames of so much not love. For you don't fight the fire of hate with hate that just fuels the fire. You fight the fire of hate with a backfire, the fuel of which is love. The commandment that comes into play here, of course, is the Eighth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In commenting on the commandments in the small catechism, I really like the approach Luther takes, which is to take commandments which are framed mostly to say you shall not do this or that. But in the course of answering the question, what does this mean? He also flips the commandments over to say not what just what they should not do, but also to see the helpful and healing and positive and good things the commandments tell us to do. And so in the case of this commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Luther asks, what does this mean for us? And then answers, we are to fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbors, betray or slander them, or destroy their reputations. Instead, we are to come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. And when we do so, when we are not just silent of words, but actually speak up with words which bless rather than curse, which lift up rather than tear down, which encourage rather than berate, which are fueled by love rather than by hate, then we are the ones lighting backfires, which will be good, for they will do the world good. And it doesn't need to be complicated. I was at Starbucks in Hy-Vee the other morning, and I forgot my phone. And so I said to the young woman who took my order, can you, can you do what they do with my Hy-Vee rewards card, which is that I give you my phone number, and then I can get credit for this purchase? She said, we aren't able to do that. I said, oh, that's too bad. Then I said, but you know what? I bet that you are personally not the one who established that policy. Even with her mask on, I could see a huge smile as she said, thank you. <laughs> then I said, I imagine there are times that people speak harshly to you about things you have no control over. She nodded and again, quietly this time, said, thank you. I said, and thank you for the coffee. In my tiny brain, when someone later in the day probably, no doubt, did speak harshly, critically to her, maybe the hurt didn't hurt quite as much because someone else, and some others too, had spoken to her kindly. In my family, my great Aunt Agnes remains a legend 
for a simple way in which she was known to light backfires that extinguished destructive fires lit by tongues. It went like this. If she was at a coffee party or something and gossip began to be served as part of the menu, my great aunt Agnes, when there was a break in the conversation, would say, and now let something kind be said. I'm told it was an amazingly effective fire extinguisher. Sometimes, of course, people will say things or post things that fan all kinds of destructive flames, but if confronted, they say, well, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true, which, well, I mean, that's a start, and it's a good start. I mean, wow, so much of the destructive garbage people say and post these days isn't true, so I'd by all means start there, start with true. But in honor of my great Aunt Agnes, and the book of James, and of course, above all, by the love of God made known in our Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to raise the bar higher than that. Before you say or post or message or tweet or whatever, anything about somebody else, for Christ's sake, think. Is it true? Is it helpful? Is it, come on Iowans, have we forgotten this? Is it nice? And God bless Aunt Agnes. Is it kind? Amen.